Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 27. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up, raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third married her, and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection of the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's great to be with you this morning. In 2019, I had the privilege of uh, going to North America in November, and I was had two opportunities to preach, and I thought, well, this is my big moment to, you know, make it big in America. So I was uh, at the BFAC USA um, National Conference, which was in Birmingham, Alabama, and they kindly invited me to preach a homily at one of the evening services, and the passage was the beheading of John the Baptist. So, I mean, you can imagine how exciting that was to think that this was my big moment, you know, like to make an impact preaching on such an obscure passage as the beheading of John the Baptist. I frankly can't remember what I made of it, but um, I tried to do something with it. And then I preached at Pittsburgh Cathedral, and the passage was the one we just had read, uh, which, as uh, David said, is not preached on often. Uh, and I was equally thinking, well, this is another big moment, but like this could be a very small moment because it's such an obscure passage uh, to preach on. Well, that's what we're thinking about this morning Uh, Now, I guess uh, when we think about the afterlife, all of us, one way or another, have some sort of a vision of what the life after life, the afterlife, is going to be about or could be like. And we all have a vision of what the afterlife might be like. Uh, It may not be very strongly formed, but we still kind of have one. And in 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 a sense, people in the wider community have some sort of a sense or vision of what the afterlife might be like, because people do have that sort of perspective. Now, when you're an ordained person, you are involved in taking funerals, and when you take funerals, the thing that people most want to hear is that the person who's died has gone to glory. Is that not what is sort of, in a sense, an underlying tension or moment in any funeral? The people who are asking you to take the funeral want you to say that, and the people who are the most closest relatives and the dearest friends want to know that reassurance that that is what has actually happened. Uh, The Anglican funeral liturgy is incredibly subtly worded so that it actually deals with this issue uh, because it doesn't overpromise, but it doesn't underpromise either uh, in terms of what's going on 
in that particular context. Now, these days, more and more people in Australia are choosing to have secular funerals, well over 50%, and we do live in the era of what I call the DIY funeral and DIY wedding, where each wedding funeral has to be a very particular curated moment uh, and has to be somehow unique and distinctive. Now, in the age, um, every Saturday, there's a column at the back of the good weekend where, three, where there's people toss a coin and they get to respond to seven different categories. But when they, they, they toss, not the coin rather, they roll a dice, uh, they have to pick three out of the seven categories. Does anybody ever read that little thing at the back of the age? I read it every week. I think it's terrific. Uh, and more often than not, people get... Uh, the topics are rather sex, bodies, career, death, etc. And one of them is death. Uh, and when they think about death, people have to respond to all sorts of what they think about death and what's going to happen to them when they die. More often than not, when people actually are talking about this topic in this little particular feature article, they talk about the fact that they want to have what we call these days a good death, uh, and they also are very agnostic or vague about what might happen after they have died. Similarly, uh, I was thinking about this when I read the book God is Good for You by uh, Greg Sheridan. Anybody read this book? It was a bestseller the year before last. And in it, he interviews a number of eminent Australians, one of whom is a member of this church, uh, about faith and a whole range of matters in relation to faith. A former prime minister who studied theology, when asked about the afterlife, said he believes in life after death, but he doesn't know the details of what it will be like. That was striking, don't you think? Uh, I won't quote from the eminent Australian who's in the book, who's a member of this church, because I don't think that would be helpful or fair. So another one who was a former leader of the opposition when asked about this particular matter said, is there life after death? I hope so. I certainly hope that there's something after death. I accept that we are accountable for our lives. And thirdly, a former prime minister put it this way. Does he believe in life after death? Yes, I do. I don't know what, in what form. Let me turn the question around. Do I believe that literally your life is snuffed out of death and there is absolutely nothing after? No. But what life after death looks like, that truly is a mystery. I guess we'll all find out at some point. Now, that's kind of striking, don't you think? Three kind of eminent Australians who are people of faith, which is great, but who are fairly agnostic or vague about what life after death might be about. Now, if I had started off today's sermon by talking in intricate detail about my birth, that might have been a really strange thing to do because we... Our birth and our end of our lives are seemingly very significant, aren't they? But we don't go into intricate detail about our birth, but we do think about what might happen to us after we die. Which brings us to today's uh, seemingly curious and strange reading. The Sadducees uh, come to Jesus with what is a loaded question. It says in verse 27, Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Now, they know exactly what they're doing. They're trying to trick Jesus... Uh, into saying something that would be contrary to their thinking and teaching and therefore they could dismiss him uh, and they're trying to embarrass him. They are simply seeking to do one of those classic what-if questions, a question which had been settled in their mind a very long time ago. Now, all of us have resorted to these sort of what-if type questions at some point in our life, have we not, when we're trying to trick someone up? Maybe that was more associated with when you were a teenager, but we've all done it the militarist and the pacifist, what if someone was attempting to rob you and your family, would you fight back? Or a child asks the mother, what if the world ended tomorrow, would you really make me do my homework tonight? 
Or the skeptic asks the believer, what if there is no God? Will you still pray? Uh, Karen, my wife, who's a teacher in, a, in an Anglican school, uh, teaches religious studies, and she's regularly an- asked at parent-teacher interviews as to why it's compulsory at the Anglican school for their children to do religious studies, uh, as if this is somehow, you know, someone's never ever I've thought of this question before and it's never been asked before, uh, that they would insist on children in an Anglican school having Christian teaching. Well, the question goes like this. So, Jesus, Moses wrote for us about how to handle a situation if a married man dies without producing children. The wife is to remarry and one of her brothers-in-law in order to have a child. But what if this happened and a woman married all seven brothers and never had any children with them? Would she be married, yeah, still be married? Who would she be married to, rather, in the resurrection? Now, that is indeed a tricky question, don't you think? Seven marriages and no children. Uh, and who, in that fact, is the husband. Uh, as an aside, uh, when I was functioning as a bishop, I did have re- receive a letter once from a cleric, an Anglican minister, who was seeking permission to marry for the fourth time. Three of the previous wives had been in the same retirement village. So it was an interesting situation <laughs> to have to work out how to respond to that particular request. Uh, that's an aside, so let's move on <laughs> from that situation. So Jesus, as was his want, doesn't engage with their question, but in fact he goes straight to the heart of the matter. And what a surprising response it is. Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. Now, in our age, people are still involved in marriage, the people getting married and people seeking after marriage. It's still a big issue in our life. Uh, this is a time for personal confession, but is anybody here married, watch married at first sight? I wouldn't be willing to admit it personally myself, publicly, uh, but it is incredibly popular, apparently, and I have to confess I have chosen never to watch it. Now, it is... A, it, it is But, and it is a big but, in the age to come, Jesus says, there will be neither marriage nor being given in marriage. So what's going on here? Isn't going to heaven meant to be, in a sense, like an extended family reunion where you all get together again and keep up with each other for all eternity? Because that's what many people think heaven's going to be about. It's just catching up with all the people you really like and members of your extended family who have gone to glory. Well, he goes on to say, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Now, Jesus here is giving us, I think, a very unique insight into the life to come. And I think we ought to be able to actually have a fuller understanding of what the life to come is going to be about than thinking it's some sort of vague thing which we're not really sure what it's going to be like until we get there. If we are God's children, then we are the children, Jesus, children of the resurrection, Jesus said. And just as Jesus died and rose again, we believe that we will die physically at some stage, but that after death we'll be raised again. Life after life starts today with Christ and continues on into eternity. Our physical death at some point is but a stepping stone into a whole new future. And to reinforce his point, he refers to the patriarch Moses. In the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. 
Now, in referring to Moses, Jesus undermines the question from the Sadducees. The Sadducees believed that a teaching, belief, practice, or habit was not authentic unless it could be validated from the first five books, the Pentateuch, uh, in what we call the Old Testament. So the Mosaic, in the Mosaic Law, they would search those books, and unless it was there, it was not relevant or viable for their faith. So Jesus draws on the teaching from Moses, particularly the incident of the burning bush, to further defend his answer. Now, we remember the story. Moses is in the desert. He's actually called, his call from God comes when this bush that is burning continues to be burned and can't be extinguished. The bush is being, is being burnt but not being consumed. And in this interplay between the human and the divine, Moses is commissioned by God to deliver God's people, uh, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt from the promised land. Reluctant to undertake such a task, Moses questions, who am I to say sent me? And God responds, tell them that I am sent you because I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So when Jesus responds to the Sadducees, he reminds them of this story. God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. What we do in the here and now is important, and God will take care of us when our time comes. Now, you may think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses as being dead, but God is their God, and in fact, they're not dead. They're still alive today. The Sadducees, in their strict conformity to their theological persuasion, were unable to comprehend that standing before them was God in the flesh, that Jesus himself was the word, the new law, and the new covenant. He was the Messiah, and he not only brought a new teaching, but he himself was that teaching. So what do we see in this unusual dialogue? Well, we see that Jesus believed in and taught of a forthcoming physical resurrection. And we see that he believed that in the life to come, there will be continuity with this life, but there'll also be discontinuity. We'll be recognizably, visibly ourselves, but we'll be enfleshed in resurrected bodies that are perfected. At present, we live by faith and not by sight. But in the life to come, we will be gathered together with Jesus face to face. At present, we pray and read the scriptures, and in this way, we believe we commune with God, and we talk with him, and he speaks with us. In the life to come, he'll speak with us directly, and we will respond directly in praise and adoration. At present, we struggle with sin and temptation, but in the life to come, we will be fully transformed and fully renewed so that we'll no longer have those struggles and those tensions. Now, more specifically, we can see from Jesus' teaching that here that marriage is a gift from God given for human flourishing. It is given for mutual companionship, but also for human reproduction. It's for the good ordering of human community. Yet we also see that it will be unnecessary in the life to come. In that future and eternal life, we'll be experience a fuller form of human community as a part of God's renewed people dwelling on God's renewed planet. All of the things that currently divide us will be overcome. Racial tension, hatred, hostility, war, rage, and malice. We won't be defined by our sexuality and we will enjoy true intimacy with one another. Young and old, women and men, and those who are uncertain, rich and poor, the seemingly insignificant and the seemingly insignificant. The rage and, rage and anger that is so much a characteristic of our age will be no more. And the tension within the church around human sexuality and marriage will also be no more. 
Does this somehow dishonor and diminish marriages in our current lives? Well, I think not. As it says in the prayer book, marriage is to be honored by all. No one should enter into it lightly or selfishly, but responsibly and joyfully with mutual respect and the promise to be faithful. Now, at the same time, it also means that we don't build our entire world around our marriage. We commit ourselves to each other and invest in our marriage and our families, but we have to keep that in perspective. Marriage, friendship with others is vital for our healthy marriage. Christian worship and service should be key features of family life. Christian community should be a part of the family's experience of growing up together. It's not just about our little island of a marriage and our own particular family, as important as that is. It's a family within a bigger community of families. Churches, Christian community should be a key commitment. Churches should model the life to come by being places where people of any background are welcome. Single people should never, ever be viewed as second-class citizens, but should find rich friendship uh, and love in the context of Christian community. Now, none of that can be assumed, and all of that has to continue to be worked at, because that's part of the challenge of forming Christian community in a complex era like the one we live in at present. Now, interestingly, one of the defining values of our age is inclusion, and that is one of the big ongoing issues, is it not? Because many of the discussions, the debates, the arguments are around that particular issue. Well, what we see here is a vision of true Christian inclusive community, which will be a part of our eternal future with Christ together. Now, this is an amazing vision of true human community. So how can we ensure that we are a part of it, both today and in in the future? Because the resurrected life starts today and goes on into eternity. It's not something that starts just after we die. Well, Jesus puts it this way. Those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead. Well, how can we be considered worthy? Well, surely none of us are in ourselves are worthy in ourselves to be considered to be worthy of this life that we starts today and goes on forever. Especially for the age to come of the resurrection from the dead. To be worthy of the coming kingdom, one has to first acknowledge one's unworthiness. In ourselves, we don't deserve to be a part of this amazing community that God invites us into uh, and this incredibly exciting future. In fact, we deserve the opposite. We live in a fallen world where we are all too aware of our frailties and our failures. Both individually and communally, we don't measure up. If anything has been sort of radically illustrated in the past six or seven weeks in our community in Australia, it's been the fact that we all fail. We, all don't, we don't measure up and that we all need help. Now, fortunately, we believe in a God of grace who, through the loving action of Jesus, is able to reconcile us, to forgive us, and to renew us. And fortunately for us, we know that it isn't a beauty contest and it doesn't depend upon our own efforts. Jesus himself deems us worthy of taking part in this life, this age to come, worthy of the resurrection from the dead. Now, many of us will be very familiar with the invitation when we were younger to come to Jesus and to give our lives to be Christ and to be saved. I did that when I was about 16 years old. I prayed a prayer of repentance, sought Christ's forgiveness, and had the assurance of eternal life. For some parts of the Christian church, this has become an excuse to justify being saved, having the hope of glory, and making no difference to the way you live today. 
because you can just get on with your life and do whatever you feel like. Uh, love God and do as you please. Well, in, the, in fact, the opposite should be the case. If you do believe in the life to come and it, that it starts today, that means the life to come has to be expressed in the way we live today. That does mean there are implications for the way we live, the way we view the planet, the way we view Christian community, and the way in which we seek to live and work and express our relationships. We, we, we believe in a renewed. We believe in a, a future having being a part of a renewed planet. That means we should be committed to renewing the planet today. If we're passionate about being a part of a community of love and welcome, that means we should be seeking and striving to make a community of love and welcome a part of what we express and experience today and many other things one could say. So the fact that we hope to have this hope of glory is not an excuse for just doing what you feel like today. It should radically change the way in which, in fact, we live today because the hope that we have of the future starts today and goes on into eternity. Well, a seemingly obscure passage, but I think giving us incredible insight into something that we rarely talk about and we often have very vague ideas about. It's not the whole story. There are other things that could be said, but I hope that's been encouraging for you as you think about the hope that you have in God's new future. Amen.